1 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 13 down to verse 20. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. They do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's inerrant and holy word endures forever. May he bring his blessing to us in this time. Paradoxes. Paradoxes are those matters or those uh, things which appear contradictory when set uh, in contrast to each other, but yet are both true. Paradoxes. And there are a number of paradoxes that occur within Christianity. Paradoxes that are theological. Probably the hardest paradox for us to grasp hold of. God is one God in three persons. That's a paradox. How can he be one numerically and yet three numerically? And yet that is the truth, isn't it? This is the only living and true God. And to deny that about God is to deny him as God, which is why we declare that there is only one true Religion in the world. The paradox of the Trinity confounds many, but just because it confounds us doesn't make it false. (laughs) That's the thing about a paradox. We also have paradoxes in Scripture that are difficult for us to grab hold of. Biblical paradoxes. For example, in Romans 3.28, we are told we are justified by faith alone and not by works. And then you get over to James chapter 2, 24, and we are told we are justified by works and not faith alone. <laughs> it's a paradox. But when it understood in context, when understood within the realm of theology, and when understood when you're not trying to destroy theology that is true, it's not necessarily a paradox. It's just one of those more complicated matters of the Christian faith to understand. But it's a bit of a paradox. But there are also 
paradoxes that occur experientially in our lives. It's something that is before us within this text. And we see this often meeting us in Scripture. When we are told, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, that strength is made perfect in weakness. Wrap your head around that. Paul says, I would rather boast, take glory in my afflictions, in my sufferings, in my persecutions, in all of these things, because when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Yeah. That's a paradox. And the world doesn't understand that when it tries to understand what makes for strength in the eyes of God in the weakness of the flesh. And and here in our text is again another one of those paradoxes that Paul brings out when in verses 19 and 20 he talks about joy and rejoicing. And that joy and rejoicing is set in the context of grief and sorrow and tribulation. As we heard already and we'll come to it a little bit later on but James 2 uh, sorry, James 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What a paradox. What a challenging thing to, to embrace within the Christian life. That when my life gets hard and difficult, when people rise up in hatred against me, when I have an illness that debilitates my life, That in those times I am to rejoice and count it all joy. How do you do that? Well, we know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I remind you again, and I will always remind you again and again, that whatever it is that we are called to in life, in Christ, God is the one who supplies us with what we need to so live in Christ to his glory. And the joy that he calls us to exercise is not a joy that comes from within us, but a joy in which the Holy Spirit implants in us. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And as a fruit of the Spirit, joy is that state of being able to hope to praise, to rejoice, even when your situation is met with grief or suffering or a a persecution. It is something that brings forth a testimony of the hope, the praise, and the joy we have in God. When a loved one dies in the Lord, it is not contradictory to grieve and yet To hope with joy. Because we know the truths are at work. That this one who has died in the Lord. However sorrowful we might be. Is in fullness of joy in God's presence. Hallelujah. The same with persecution. The same with other sufferings. The same with infirmities. It is hard to go through debilitating illness and have joy in it. And here Paul is is bringing 
uh, out a truth about the joy that the church can have in gospel ministry when it's hard, when it's difficult, when you're being persecuted, or when things don't go according to our plans and purposes. And this joy that we are called to exercise isn't a joy where we're looking for that silver lining behind a dark cloud. <laughs> that, that, again, is the vanity of the world. You know, behind every dark cloud is a silver lining. Well, I've found a lot of times that's not always the case. <laughs> Sometimes there's another dark cloud waiting to come. <laughs> I mean, we have that other saying in relation to that, things all, bad things always happen in threes. <laughs> yeah, so much for that silver line. And, and it's not about pretending happiness. You know, you come and people say, how are things are going? Well, they're hard, but we're getting by and it's all good, you know. You know that kind of joy? That's not the joy the Lord is talking about. I can tell you that the joy, that, it con- that, that which joy contrasts, its opposite, if you will, is discouragement. Not disappointment. I, I've come to learn that. In the past year. And when, when things change. Or when the difficulties and challenges of gospel ministry arise. And people say well you must be discouraged. I said no no. Disappointed yeah. But discouragement. Robs you of joy. Depression. Despair. Those are the adjectives that are the opposite of the joy. That the Holy Spirit gives us. And that's what we have to war against. That's what we're fighting. To to keep that bitterness out of our soul. Bitterness which we might think in our disappointments and discouragements. We're simply directing at persons or circumstances. But in actuality it's always being directed to God. Especially since we know that he is sovereign. In everything. You see why joy is so important. And joy is something my friends. That is given more abundantly. More aboundingly than we realize. Joy is a grace that is found in. And a grace that is desired for us. By our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You think all the way back into the time when Israel was just coming out of their Babylonian enslavement and they're returning to their land and they're starting to rebuild everything and they hear the law in Nehemiah 8 and they're just filled with disappointment and discouragement and it's welling up and Nehemiah comes to the people and he said, today's not a day for you to be wallowing in, in, that, in that despair of your sins and all that occurred in your life that led you to that captivity. No, today is to be a day of joy because the Lord is restoring us. That says something about the Sabbath, doesn't it? Today is a day of joy. And that's where we get those wonderful words. You may not know it. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the joy that you can muster in that moment. 
The joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, we can weep over our sins, yes. But if you remain weeping over your sins without looking to the mercy God has provided for you in the Savior, then you are wallowing in something that the Savior is delighted to take care of in your behalf. And that weeping ought to be turned to joy. Thank you, God. Your mercies are sure and true this morning to cleanse and to revive my heart in you. It's a daily exercise, isn't it? Joy of the Lord is our strength. And I'll come to what that joy is. But it's also something that Jesus desires for you. In John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Full. Jesus' desire is for you to have a fullness of joy from him. And the context of those words was when he begins to warn them about all of the hatred that they're going to face within the world and how difficult and challenging that's going to be for your life for the life of the church. But he says, if you abide in my love for you, as I abided in, my lo- uh, abided in the Father's love for me, abide in my love, and you will be filled with joy. <clears throat> what a recipe for the Christian. And I ask you as we look at this, is it joy that describes you? We heard from the children's moment, Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It means being filled within with the joy of the Lord. And I ask you, does Jesus' joy motivate you? Inflame your hearts. Does it, in the context of verses 17 to 20, does it motivate you for gospel ministry even when it's hard? Does it motivate you in service in the church and doing those things that you're called to of God with the gifts that he's given to you, even when it goes unnoticed or unappreciated? Does joy describe your life? And one of the things that we see first, and it's in verse 17, is that there has to be within us an eagerness. To exercise joy. Joy eagerly endeavors. Look at what Paul says there. He comes down to talk about joy in verse 19. But the context is there when he says, We, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. And and Paul is talking about a joy. You get down to verses 19 and 20. It's there. You're our glory. You're our joy. It's that joy we have for you that is making us eager. Eager to work. Have you ever planned a vacation as a family? And you can see it sometimes uh, in your children that the closer you get to the date of having that vacation... How all the plans that have been made, more and more joy increases within your heart. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. 
this, this eager endeavoring. I'm endeavoring more eagerly. And, and you look at what he's endeavoring for. This is something that you can see. Joy has a focus. And one of the first things it's focused on is the joy of fellowship. How many of you have ever connected that? Joy has diligent desires. You look at your heart. What do you desire? Ever notice how the things that you desire, you expect them to bring joy to you? I sometimes think we get Psalm 37, verse 4, a little wrong. Many of you will know this verse, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, most of us just simply take it to mean that if I'm delighting myself in the Lord himself, then God's going to give me whatever I desire. And we look at the things that we desire. But I think there's a nuance that needs to come to that. That it's saying that he will give you the desires of your heart. That there's also this sense that God will help you to desire what is right and good. If you delight yourself in the Lord. Because let's face it, not all the desires of our hearts are right and good. And when those desires are fulfilled, how much joy is lasting afterwards. And so when you think about the desires that you have, the diligence that you exercise toward those desires, one of the first questions ought to be, is this a right desire? Especially if I'm looking for joy from it. And my friends, one of the great desires ought to be the fellowship of God's people. Even as Paul has made that his great desire, he says there at the end of verse 17, I want to see your face with great desire. How about that? I think when I look in the morning, on Sunday mornings, everyone's going to see this face. Good or bad? But do you desire it? Is this something that, that fills your heart with eagerness? Going back to that example I used for the children at their birthday party. How would it be if you received a whole lot of gifts but nobody came? It would, it would affect you, wouldn't it? And, and we look for that joy of the Lord, but we don't look for it necessarily in one of the best and rightest of places within the company of the church. Here's where Paul begins. Joy eagerly endeavors for the fellowship of God's people. Did you ever notice in Acts 2 verse 42 when it talks about the things that marked the early church? That we would think a different order. What marked the early church? Acts 2 42. Doctrine. Sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Prayer. And what was the other one? Fellowship. But if order is anything, where does fellowship come? Right after what defines the church, the doctrine of the apostles and fellowship. And then the sacrament and then prayer. And usually in the Greek, order is important. 
You know, it's a funny thing today with the modern technology that we have. We most often take the easy route for communication with one another. And we don't realize how often this convenience actually moves us away from communion. I can attest as one who, as a grandparent, lives very far away from any of our grandchildren. It is nice to be able to use Zoom and FaceTime to meet with them. But do you know what happens when you hit that end button? Your heart is yearning more to see them. That's what Paul is saying. Why does joy begin here? It begins here because of what the church is. What is the church? The church is a community of people whom God has called out from this world of darkness into his marvelous light and has united them together in the love of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. I find it very interesting how that sense of the church gets lost through technology. Do you know many mega churches have all these satellite campuses where they put up a screen so that you can all listen to the same man preach in your own location. But there's no face-to-face fellowship. That's the issue with Zoom. Zoom was helpful when we needed it. But I dare to say that if Christians have become content with Zoom for worship, then they've lost something of what it means to be walking in faith and love and communion with Christ. Because the church is a gathering of God's people, united together in the love of Christ. Gathering. That's the word it means. You you look at that word translated church, it means the gathered ones, the called out ones. And, And Paul expresses a pain here of not being able to see them. And it doesn't come out so well in the English language. But when he says there, uh, brethren, we have been taken away from you. Verse 17. Do you know what that actual word is that's translated taken away? It's, It's a shame that we don't have a more literal translation. I feel like I have orphaned you. That's what the word is. Orphaned. I feel like I've orphaned you. Can you imagine parents being taken away from your children where they are orphans? That's the pain behind Paul's words here when he says, I can't come to you. I can't come and be with you face to face. Hard to have joy in that time, isn't it? But that's the depth that fellowship in the Lord brings. If misery loves company, how much more should our joy be made full when we come together in the bonds of God's love for us in Christ Jesus? And think about this. Does missing the communion of the saints bring such pain to your soul? The few times that I can count on my hands that I have missed church over the course of my Christian life, My family will attest, I am an unsettled man in the home when I can't go to church on the Lord's Day. It's not just because I want to stand here and preach. Because this is God's people. 
Jesus knew that despair of being orphaned. You think about it with his time on the cross. It's one of the most sadful, painful words and expressions that he confesses when he says in Matthew, 26, 40, uh, Matthew 27, 46, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The Hebrew words. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And, and, and this was the son crying out to his father. It, it's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't cry out to him, Father! Every other time when he calls on the name of God, he says, Father, Father, Father! Except for this one time when he experienced what it was to be orphaned from God. And that in his humanity. But even before he experienced that, Jesus was making that provision for us so that our joy could have an eager expectation to focus on. In John 14, verses 16 to 18, Jesus here is, is trying to encourage the hearts of his disciples whom he knows will forsake him. Isn't this the amazing thing? Jesus is going to be forsaken by them. But what he does is he's preparing them for the blessedness and truth that he will not forsake them. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And why? He says here in, in verses 16 to 18, he says, I'm going to be praying the Father that he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him or sees him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. We know and we are just immensely thankful for that promise. We have the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth who now abides within us. And Jesus was praying that the Father would give him to you. Why? Verse 18. So that I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. See, he not only knows what it is to feel that pain and experience of being forsaken by God. But on the flip side, he is going to ensure by his Holy Spirit, you will never feel that. You will never experience that. You will never be orphaned by our God. But when we understand that, I hope you're connecting it to understanding why this fellowship is so important for you. How the Lord uses this to bring joy into your life in the hardness of times. Because when we are together, the glory and the blessing of God's presence is immensely greater where he is speaking to all of us together. You are my family. You're my children. You're brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
and the joy of Jesus, the joy of the Lord to come and bring to you that salvation at the expense of his suffering is now the joy that you all are filled with and you share together. And here, my friends, in the midst of God's people, that becomes a strength, fullness of joy that we can have this side of glory. My friends, joy is deeply connected to fellowship in Christ. And that brings us to the next point, and these last two are, are very quick. I wanted to focus on that one. And in verse 18, we understand that joy will face hindrances. Your joy in the Lord is something that will be tested. You have an enemy at work. Paul realizes this in verse 18. He said, we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. He even names the one who's always at work to hinder. That is, to cut off, to set obstacles, to break the road so you can't go any further. That's, that's the meaning behind that word, hinder. And whatever it was that was happening, we know one thing was persecution. They were chased out of Thessalonica. They could not come back upon threat of death and imprisonment. In fact, it was during this time that Paul was called to go to Corinth and to serve in Corinth. God had different paths for him, but he had a purpose for the church of Thessalonica to endure this hardship. It was hindering Paul's service. We understand that one of Satan's ultimate goals is to hinder the witness of Christ and the spread of the gospel. And what better way than to disunite or to keep separated the people of God? What better way to keep us all in our own little agendas out there and and keep us from coming together In the presence of God, being built up in the faith, being strengthened. Again, like that birthday party. How much joy it is to see grandma, grandpa, brothers and sisters coming together when we are celebrating something. And we just feel the the joy, or at least we should, other issues How much more? And those hindrances come to keep us from serving one another. Satan's hindrances work in small ways to make us want to stay home, not exercise our gifts and callings in the Lord, not to benefit one another. And for Paul, I believe one of the great great things that he had to struggle with was to Face these hindrances without despairing in the work of the gospel. He had been called to this. And now everything seems so up in the air. And and if I may just be personal here as well. These kind of hindrances and how Satan works. You know one of the hardest things for a minister. Is to not make church about himself. To accept and receive what the Lord in his will and working 
brings about. It's hard. And it's hard when we make our joy dependent upon favorable circumstances and not upon the Lord Jesus himself. It is easy to be happy when things are good. But as our hearts go, and as many of you already know by personal experience, it's in those good and joyful times of favorable experiences that we think less upon God, more upon self. That's why James says, James 1, 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that, that, that word trial is the same word for temptation. These trials often become temptations in the hands of Satan to hinder us, to rob us. Why are we to count those hindrances of joy? Because as he says in James 1 verse 3, because God is at work perfecting your faith, helping you to grow more and more trusting in the Lord, dependent upon the Lord, dependent upon the grace that keeps you, than from those times that just simply make you happy. And it is joy that comes, joy that the Spirit begins to provide, joy that comes from knowing what God has done for you in Christ, joy that comes from knowing that, that the Lord through the cross has defeated your enemy and has defeated your sin and has brought you life, mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing, and etc., etc., etc. That the joy of the Lord then becomes a strength to encourage your faith. God has not forsaken me. He is with me. And that brings us to our last point as we see in verses 19 and 20. And that's, that's this, is, you know, joy eagerly endeavors that fellowship. Joy faces hindrances, but joy focuses on glory. There is glory that meets us in our life. You see, when you read verses 19 and 20, when Paul says, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is come, coming? You are our glory and joy. You see where Paul put his joy? Wasn't it in how people responded to him in his ministry? It was an eternal glory that became his focus. And when Paul thought about his ministry to these people at Thessalonica, to the churches that he helped to establish, his his joy, his glory, his hope was that he would see them in the presence of Christ when he returns. He realized that he was not serving himself, that he was not making a name for himself, but that he was concerned for their glory in Christ. You know, I know I'm being a little personal here, but you know, one of the things that I always find uncomfortable when I go to our synod meetings, and many people know I'm a church planter, is that I often get asked this question. How many are saved under your ministry? 
How big is your church? Is it growing? And, and, and those are markers that we have set in place. And, and when I look here, what Paul is, is saying here is, my great joy in serving God and his gospel is knowing that you're going to be in the presence of Jesus when he comes back. Is that enough? You think about that. You think about that when you are serving with your gifts in the church and you come and you do things that largely go unnoticed and you wonder, is this making any difference? You think on that when you don't receive that appropriate or what you believe to be that appropriate response when you serve in Jesus' name. Is that your hope and joy? What men and women may say to me what congratulatory praise I might receive from people. The communion of the saints has a joy in serving the Lord because we know that those whom we serve in his name, who belong to him, will one day be standing in glory, looking upon Jesus, not You know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is that enough? Paul is saying, for me, it is. This is the joy of Jesus that fills our souls. The joy of the Lord that is our strength. Jesus was so filled with the joy of returning to the glory that he had with his Father from before the foundation of the world that his one desire of that glory that he was waiting to experience himself. What was that one desire that he said? Father, I am looking forward to that time when I am back with you in glory so that those whom you have given to me may be with me where I am now. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? His joy is this. I want to suffer. I want to endure that cross. I despise its shame. Because I know that as I complete this work in the will of my Father and stand with him in glory again, I will have all of you with me. That's his joy. Isn't that amazing? It is. That's the glory that he looked to even as he was wanting to be restored to the glory he had with his father from before this world was created, from before man fell into sin, before sin and death encompassed all of creation. He says, I've got a greater glory because I know everyone whom you have given me, Father, they're going to be here with me so that they can behold my glory, which you, My friends, joy is focused on that. That's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And that should fill our hearts. Do you eagerly desire fellowship? I hope this has impressed you, the importance of it. Do you understand what hindrances are doing in your life? Not to rob you of joy, but to mature you. And is your joy looking to that glory that is only found in Christ. Turn that.